All right, listen, guys, I get it. Many of you are unable to financially support this ministry because you're spending your cash and your lives on raising young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praise God for you and that endeavor. However, algorithms are a thing. Shadow banning, sadly, is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. It's good to see you all here. And thank you very much, Joel, for the invitation to participate in this conference. The the challenge of listening to somebody like Joel now and even Dale is that I used to be the young guy in the room. I know I still look younger than Joel, but um, I used to be the young guy in the room. I'm not quite anymore, but neither am I the older, more seasoned, mature man like James. So I'm kind of stuck right there in the, uh, in the middle between uh, old and young. It reminded me of the words of a poem by T.S. Eliot. Uh, Thou hast neither youth nor age, but as it were an after-dinner sleep, dreaming on both. So that's why they put me on in the morning so I can get my afternoon nap. Anyway, my um, topic, defining theonomy and why some Christians oppose it, is the the task of the the next hour. Before we begin, why don't we uh, pray together? And I want to base my prayer on some of the opening words of Psalm 119. Let's pray together. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who live according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. I will praise you with a sincere heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. With my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. Lord, now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I had an absolutely beautiful PowerPoint presentation to go with this lecture that I was finishing on a 10-hour flight here the other day. When I got here, I discovered there was no PowerPoint facility. And I'm not a very good sketch artist, so there's no sketchboard to go with it. So it's just going to be words. And I know that's challenging sometimes, especially for the younger generation, but I hope that we will be able to track together through what I want to say to you about this issue. 
Now, at the dawn of time, we learn from Scripture that our first parents in self-glorification sought to be as God. And they shattered communion with God at what Tolkien beautifully calls the breaking of the world, at the breaking of the world. And as a result, each human community that followed became an emergency structure built on ruined foundations. We call that the fall. Because of that fall, in an important sense, all of history became the history of guilt. All of history became the history of guilt. Now, when we talk about theonomy, when we talk about God's law, ultimately, what matters is that we're dealing with the person and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not some sort of subtopic over here for those who have an interest in that kind of thing. It comes down to the question of Christ or Caesar. Now, that history of guilt began to manifest itself in societal and civilizational reality. Guilt is not simply a private matter. It's a public issue. It always has been. If you want to understand what the woke agenda is really all about, it's about guilt. And a, and a fruitless attempt to expiate that guilt. At the root, then, of all the striving for life that happened in the pagan world before Christ, whether it was in their frenzied battles that you can see in almost any movie about Vikings, or their orgiistic fertility cult rituals, or in their idol worship, all of that expressed a religious yearning for a restored fellowship with the eternal God, with the divine. All they saw around them was a wearying cycle of birth, growth, decay, death. After the fall. How, was, how were human beings going to respond to that in their communal lives? And so one thought was that glory in battle would lead to Elysium, some kind of eternal paradise for the warrior. Maybe the fertility cult rituals could renew the land and deal with and expiate our guilt. The unyielding despair, actually, of the ancient peoples was located in this problem of the ineradicable sense of guilt. And it touched the past, the present, and it reached forward into the future. No rite, no struggle, no ritual was able to evade it or was able to overcome it. And this actually led to the tragic view of life the tragic view of life. Tragedy is more than an art form exemplified by the Greeks. We still, much of our modern entertainment is 
tragedy repackaged. Man is a victim of fate. Tragedy reenacts a deep-seated human perception of world history as guilt and curse. But tragedy wasn't the final word of pagan man. Something new needed to be introduced into history that could perhaps bring about blessing rather than curse. And so the demonic delusion was born that if guilty man could establish his own law, establish his own throne, he could abolish guilt and realize freedom and eternity. Ethelbert Stauffer asks, and I quote, who is this man, this chosen one, who by his deeds is to refute the witness of tragedy? Well, what was the answer of the pagan world? He is the statesman. And what is the work of blessing to which he is called? His work is empire. His work is empire. So to truly abolish guilt, this ruler must be a child of the gods, according to the pagan view, a quasi-divine figure, a hero. And that hero is going to have to establish peace and law to bring about salvation and deliverance from tragedy and guilt. And Stauffer says, he says, so a demon or a daemon took hold of Xerxes and filled him with the greatest idea that a statesman of the ancient world ever had to unite land and sea, east and west, under one scepter. This was the politics of a salvific empire. And it required more than a politician. It required somebody who would be ruler and priest and savior. Eternity and divinity here could be, they thought, united, overcoming guilt and alienation, where man is finally a law to himself, embodied in the state. Now, history shows that things didn't change. Things didn't change. From Xerxes through Augustus Caesar, the basic tragedy of life was not overcome. Guilt was not overcome. From Africa to Asia to Europe, different kings, emperors, leaders succumbed again and again to the demonic temptation to be as God to be a law to oneself, to know and define for oneself good and evil. And so imperial man became the ideal for several thousand years and culminated in Augustus Caesar at the time of Christ. The Caesars has been gradually, from the time of Julius Caesar, gradually deified. And it was their coinage, their coins, that provided the official commentary on their identity 
And coins began to appear with the inscription, the divine Caesar, son of God, savior of the world. And the emperor cult was established. And sacrifices to the emperor were made in the temples throughout the empire. Augustus actually died 14 years after the birth of the truly divine man, the true Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the true God-man appeared, and he was likewise tempted and confronted by Satan in the wilderness, what was it that the, the daemon of this world offered him? He says, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world if you will only bow down and worship me, the lawless one, the lawless one. In other words, Jesus, you can be the imperial man. I'll give it to you. Instead of acting, though, autonomously and succumbing to the daemon of this world, he responded from the law of God. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. And that covenant law, the law of God, opens with the greatest and most revolutionary words that were ever heard in the ancient world. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so we encounter there a shattering polemic against the demonic myth of the creature as divine, of man as lawgiver and savior. Actually, Ethelbert Stafford in his book, Christ and the Caesars, states it well. He says, and I quote, the religious transfiguration of the creature is the proton pseudos, that is, the first error of mythology which is brought to light by the Decalogue, by the law of God. The transfiguration of the creature into the divine, that error of mythology. The triune God is the only Lord over all and the true Archimedean point. He is the lawgiver for all creation. But what this promise of the Decalogue actually means is that history is not endless recurrence of guilt, as the pagans thought. There was a future ordained by God, a future subject to his judgment, 
And the living God promises in his covenant law faithful love and mercy to make an end to the tragedy of the past and to open the way to the future. You know that the pagans had a cyclic view of history as endless recurrence. They didn't see history as creation through to recreation and restoration. And the law of God opens up this vista to the future to make an end to tragedy. And that's the meaning, actually, of the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of Man. He is the living Torah and the goal of the law to bring his mercy and faithful love on a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. It is here that God answers the myth of the ancients. And he does so by both fulfilling and dissolving it. Yes, man is guilty. The gospel doesn't deny that. And only the universal empire of the God-man can overcome guilt and tragedy by establishing his kingdom and his throne and upholding his righteous law and providing as priest endless mercy for the forgiveness of sins. And he does that by meeting the demands of his justice in full. So he confronts the myth by both fulfilling and then dissolving it. And this is the gospel that we preach. That because of the victory at Calvary, the tragic view of life has been destroyed. It's been overcome. It's been dissolved. Sin is paid for. The king is on his throne, and his righteous law is smashing the myth of self-deification from east to west, from north to south, his kingdom extending throughout all of the earth. In fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 42, verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So I want to, 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 to ground you in that reality first, that this is about the gospel of the kingdom. It's about Christ or Caesar. It's about the tragic view of life or the redemptive view of life. Secondly, defining theonomy, the fact of Christian law. Now, what I think we learn from what I've just stated is that the gospel, the good news, contains law, and law contains gospel. Gospel contains law, and law contains gospel. Now, I'm not, just, not, I'm not denying justification by faith alone. I'm saying gospel contains law, law contains gospel. The law has a central place in the proclamation and the application of the gospel, and it did for the early Christians. Listen to what Paul the Apostle said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 8 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes concerning God's law. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, 
for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So Paul says there in a judicial and civil application of the law, this is according to the glorious gospel. The glorious gospel committed to his trust. So the gospel of the kingdom, there is no such thing as a kingdom without a king. I'm away from uh, England this week, this weekend, during the coronation of a king with a service that harks all the way back to the coronation of King Solomon. They're playing around with it too much now, which isn't acceptable in my view, but there, there is still something of a significant remnant there of the meaning of king and kingdom. There's no such thing as a king without a domain or a law. And we still put the face of the king on our coins or the queen, formally. So the source of law in the Bible, in the Christian worldview, is God himself. And so the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, that the king is on his throne, is more than, it includes, but is more than, I am justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. The source of law is God, and it's always according to the gospel. Now that term that we're using as a title for this lecture, theonomy, combines two Greek words, theos and Nomos, and it just means God's law. God's law. Who could have an objection to that? Isn't it amazing how Christians work themselves up into a lather over two small Greek words joined together, God and law. God's law. The gift, the gracious gift of God's law works a lot of people up into a tremendous lather. Now, although the expression theonomy has been employed in broad general terms, I have a fly that seems to like my spectacles here. Um, in writings of people like Paul Tillich, who referred to it as the meaning of it the, as the state of culture under the impact of the spiritual presence. Theonomy is a state of culture under the impact of the spiritual presence. Well, it, yeah, sure, it is that, but let's be a bit more concrete. For most of us today, and in fact for current theological cultural discussions, it has a more defined specific implication, and that is that the revealed law of God has a binding force and significance for Christians today in every aspect of life. And that's to say that in the age of the church, in this time of the working of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost, the commandments of God in all Scripture all of Scripture, in their various implications for personal, for familial, for cultural and political life, 
have lost none of their relevance or their universal obligation. The coastlands still wait for his law word to shatter the ancient myth. And if Jesus could defeat the temptation of Satan with quotations from the law of God in Deuteronomy, we need to be confronting Satan with the fullness of his word as well. So this is, this is in now the time of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Remember that the location of the law has changed. The law used to be on tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. But under the newer administration, the law of God, according to Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, has been written on the tablets of our hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Lest any of us should think that maybe the apostles and disciples thought God was done with his law, you can fast forward not just from the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit, all the way through to Peter, I think, is it Acts 10, I think, or thereabouts, uh, where he is on a rooftop in Joppa, because he's got to go to the house of Cornelius, and Peter's operating assumption is that he cannot even enter the house of Cornelius or eat a food that has not been authorized by the law of God. He needs actually special revelation from God at that moment, well into the book of Acts, to believe that he is permitted to eat with a Gentile or eat food that had been prescribed by the Mosaic Constitution. So that's pretty clear that the apostles had not been taught to disobey God's law by the Lord Jesus or any of the other apostles. So properly understood, theonomy means that the principles of God's law remain valid and in force requiring human positivization. There's a posh word for you. Just means application. Positivization to take the principle and positivize it in a particular cultural moment or context, even the juridical sphere of modern life. That's the basic meaning of theonomy. Now, obedience to the law of God, summarized by our Lord and by the Apostle Paul as the essence of a response of love toward God and our neighbor, is basic to the scriptural vision for moral and social reality. This is what we read in Mark chapter 12, the Lord Jesus. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And you know, of course, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish. Do not think I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill, to bring it to its fullness, its completion, to put it into force. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, an often misunderstood and misquoted passage the last few years, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So when people say, oh, we just need to be loving, we need to be inclusive. You know, love is a word that's been pulled out, lifted out of the human vocabulary from, from Scripture by many Christians, redefined and then plopped back down into popular uses. It's like an elastic principle. But Paul says love is the fulfillment of the law. What does it mean to love your enemy? Does it mean to work up gooey and emotional feelings of fondness for your enemies? No. It means obey God's law with respect to your enemy. Love does no harm to a neighbor because love is the fulfillment of the law. The reformational thinker and theologian Robert Knudsen, former professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, he wrote an essay some years ago responding to this question, may we use the term theonomy? He answers in the affirmative, and he saw that the Decalogue explains the true meaning of love. He says this, the scriptures teach that Christians are to obey the will of God and that his will is expressed in his law. Christ himself joined love for himself with keeping his commandments. This is important to remember as we observe modern theologians refusing to say that love can be commanded or insisting that there is, a, there is at best a tension-filled dialectical relationship between love and law. But it is inconceivable that there will be any changes in the meaning of God's law as expressed in the Ten Commandments. So people want to suggest, modern theologians have suggested, that the Bible is full of a tension between God's law and love. And that if you're being obedient to God's law, well, you really can't be loving. There's a, there's a dialectical tension there. But the scripture says the opposite. If you love me, Jesus says, you will obey my commandments. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If you want to really love people, obey God's law with respect to them. As a pastor, I heard men say to me at times, well, I really do love my wife, but I have slept around a lot since we've been married. Is that really loving your wife? You see, love is manifest by the way in which we live. Now, this idea of the abiding validity of God's law is not a novel opinion. I know that some people seem to suggest that it is, that it's somehow some sort of radical position to believe that God's law binds us as believers, that God, who doesn't change, who doesn't lie, that somehow his law would still be relevant for our lives. But the early church apologist Justin Martyr confronting paganism, did you know that he employed the distinction between moral, ceremonial, and civil law? And he didn't even make negative remarks on the judicial law of Moses. Justin Martyr. 
That distinction was used centuries later by the reformers during the Reformation. Julius Firmicus Maternus, you need to have your false teeth in before you say that, Julius Firmicus Maternus, a Roman Christian apologist in the early fourth century during the reign of Constantine I, he makes explicit appeal even to the judicial laws of Moses. The historic turning to uh, the resources of God's law amongst serious believers should not be a surprise because the Christian faith in its ongoing conflict with the myth of the pagan world, and the reason this is controversial again is because we are once again in conflict with the myth of the pagan world, that man can be God, that he can define good and evil for himself, that imperial man embodied in the state can overrule God himself. The reason we shouldn't be surprised is that our faith is not otherworldly. It's concerned with the life of humanity and their relationship to God and each other within human society. Yes, we are waiting for the eschaton when this creation will be released, Paul says in Romans 8, from its bondage to corruption. It awaits our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then it's going to be fully renewed. But God's word is concerned with our real life in the world. The Byzantine scholar and professor of early church history, John McGuckin, has pointed out in this regard that in the first two centuries of the church, he quote, the Mosaic Torah remains a paradigmatic guide. In those first two centuries of the church, the Torah was the paradigmatic guide. And he explains that from the earliest time, Christians made a distinction between ceremonial elements in the law, that's the liturgical rules, the food regulations and so on, and the moral prescriptions. He says the moral laws are held by the church to still be in force. This is a leading scholar of the Byzantine world of the early church. Now, though the old form of Sabbath observance, he says, circumcision and other ethnocentric distinguishing principles were transcended, the law continued. And this is what he says, and I quote. This is why I wanted, uh, I prefer in these lectures to have PowerPoint, so you can see the quote, right? But just have to look at me. So anyway, here we go. He says, Christianity emerges as a religion with its eyes firmly fixed on society. A religion that has definite social aspirations despite its claims to be the eschatological community. It is a religion that wishes to build a civilization, not one that is simply running to hide itself. Even if it has seen the new Jerusalem in another place, that very radiant vision makes the church see the earthly city in a new light. That proximity between what is aspired to as the ideal politia, and what is presently experienced forms a tension that drives so much of Eastern Christian political theology. In no more than two centuries from this time, Christianity will assume charge of the whole empire of the Romans. End quote. Incredible. The central difference 
between the pagan and Christian view of law then concerned the source of law. The central difference between the pagan and Christian view of law concerned the source of law. I mentioned that in the ancient world, human beings, man, arrogated to himself the role of lawgiver, embodied in the king, the state, the pharaoh, the emperor. And likewise, for Plato, the source of law, for Greek philosophy, the source of law was humanity. Not humanity in general, in Plato's case. It was the rational insight of the guardian philosophers. That should rule the state. The rational insight of the elite. Remind you of anything? An external law that could hem you in as a philosopher, to hem in philosophical genius, that was anathema. No external law, no. This emerged from man's reason. And this inevitably led to the devaluing of the individual. It's interesting that when you see these arguments for natural law, they always support the social status quo of the time. They don't critique it. They support it. And so the individual was devalued since there was no conception of equality of all before the law of God, before a transcendent source of law. And an emphasis, therefore, was laid on the collective, not the individual, on the state. But biblical faith broke radically with pagan thought and it introduced a theocratic conception of law with the Decalogue. McGuckin says, and I quote again, by restoring a profound sense of an external, theocratically ordered standard of justice, the scriptural and evangelical charter, Byzantine Christianity, paradoxically, restored to the social order a profound sense of the importance of the individual, the person, and in this alone, it made a most radical critique of Platonic premises. God's law was used by the early church to critique pagan thought, pagan social order. And as Christians began to engage with classical Roman law, successive Christianized emperors began to reform the law in terms of the Bible and the teaching of the church. If you say that to the modern congregation in the West, shock, horror, no, keep politics out of the pulpit. But you know, if you keep politics out of the pulpit, all you end up with is a politicized church. Because nobody then within the congregation has brought their political views under the word of God. So you then have a radically politicized church to the, to the extent that pastors then become afraid to apply what the Bible says about political life because people might leave. They might lose valuable giving. But this wasn't the view of the early church. No, the church sought to reform the law. By the time of the Justinian law code in the 6th century, that bridged the gap between the classical and the medieval world, a new principle was now at work. 
Society was bonded in common rights and obligations because of its primary bond under God. And do you know what that meant? That meant that Christian preaching, the preaching of pastors over the first few centuries had in large measure achieved the demise of slavery, the end of the bloodletting games of the Roman Colosseum, the radical transformation of marriage and the family, the practical elimination of abortion and infanticide, and the permeation of Roman law with the principles of biblical law. The transformation of certain political institutions within the empire. The dominant thought of this period of the early church then was to take seriously the law word of God. I grant it wasn't worked out in systematic detail, but the law word of God was taken seriously. So that was the bridge to the medieval world. Well, who represents most paradigmatically the thought of the medieval world, of medieval Christendom? Well, it was expressed in the 13th century by Thomas Aquinas. Not my favorite guy. Not my favorite guy, but... There's always a but, because you have to have some sympathy with Thomas Aquinas, a, a real genius, but a man who was commissioned by the Pope to interpret Aristotle for the church. Because the Popes had said, you can't apply Aristotle the way the Arabs use him, Islam, so he commissioned Aquinas to interpret him for the church, and part of it was a polemic. The goal was to establish something of a polemic against the Islamic world. So one cheer for Aquinas. But despite the profound influence of Aristotle and these natural law ideas, because what he tried to do was build a bridge between pagan thought in the Greek world and the Bible, despite that, he nonetheless states plainly in his Summa Theologica that, and I quote, the written law is said to be given for the correction of natural law. Because the natural law was perverted in the hearts of some men. So that they thought those things good, which are naturally evil. Which perversion stood in need of correction. End quote. And this wasn't some generalized abstract idea either, because... He reflected on the concrete application of God's law, and he recognized that it is tyrants, he said, who legislate contrary to the revealed law of God. Aquinas differentiated various types of law in the Older Testament, and he recognizes, although the details may vary with circumstance, the principles remain entirely valid, the judicial precepts being required to maintain justice in the civil sphere. And he cites numerous passages from the Pentateuch to support his argument. And I quote, We must therefore distinguish three kinds of precepts in the old law, namely moral precepts, which are dictated by the natural law, ceremonial precepts, which are determinations of divine worship, and judicial precepts, which are determinations of the justice to be maintained among men. The ceremonial aspects he sees as set aside because they're fulfilled in Christ, 
but the judicial elements remain unaffected since they do not concern restorative and priestly aspects of salvation, but they are there to regulate external behavior. There's a very interesting lecture that I read recently on theonomy in the Middle Ages. Who'd have thought it? Theonomy in the Middle Ages with a very, very revealing conclusion. Professor Mark A. Clausen has argued very persuasively from the source material. He says this, and I quote, Thomas follows the Mosaic judicial laws closely, justifying the various punishments without modification or criticism, including the comprehensive details such as restitution for varieties of theft, wrongful death, negligence regarding animals, man-stealing, adultery, even surprisingly, the death penalty for the rebellious son. And you know that isn't dealing with children. You know that, don't you? It's a, it's a young man who can beat up his own father. who's a habitual criminal. In every case, he gives ample evidence that the judicial precepts are just as valid in his own day as they were for the Hebrew commonwealth. This is not to say that Aquinas sought to require the adoption of the details of the Old Testament Mosaic judicial laws. On the contrary, he sees them as valid in principle. In other words, this is his startling conclusion. In other words, he advocates a general equity theory of theonomy. <laughs> Tell that to a Thomist, he, he may spit up his tea or coffee. Clausen shows that Aquinas, representing medieval thought in the West, regarded the Lord Jesus as having placed the administration of judicial precepts in the hands of temporal authorities and that the judicial precepts are valid, though not necessarily binding, whilst the underlying principles remain both valid and binding on the civil magistrate. That's quite remarkable. That, that, <clears throat> that should be the preponderance perspective of medieval Christendom. Now we come to the Reformation era, and when it comes to the Reformation era, the Rhineland, Huguenot, Dutch, Scottish, Swiss, Puritan commonwealths, they founded their regional polities openly on the book of Deuteronomy. They founded them on the book of Deuteronomy. Martin Busser, John Calvin, and, and Pierre Verret had led the way in holding high the law of God. And this is what Pierre Verret, an, an often overlooked, unfortunately, reformer, he expounded the law of God at great length, and he wrote in his preface to his commentary on the law. This is what he said. This is the Reformation era now. I have proposed to declare the law of God, which must be held as the rule of all others by which men must be directed and governed. God wanted himself to give a law which would be used as a rule to all men of the earth to regulate mind, understanding, will, and affections, as much of those who must govern the other as those who must be governed by them. And he has done this in order that altogether they would recognize one God for their sovereign prince and lord, and that they would recognize themselves as servants and ministers." He comprehended in that law all moral teaching necessary for men to live well, and he has done this much better, incomparably so, than all the philosophers and all their books, those of ethics as well as politics and economics, and than all the legislators who have ever been and those who are and will be in all their laws and ordinances. 
This law could function for us as true Christian ethics, economics, and politics, if well attended to, end quote. And this regard, this honor for the law of God, dominated the Reformation era, and it was taken up by the heirs of the Reformation in England, the Puritans, who regarded and applied the equity of God's law very seriously for family, church, and state. And that's a subject that I review in some detail in my book, The Mission of God, which is available on that beautiful green table back there. And if you want to know anything about the books or any recommendations, just talk to James White. <laughs> He'll tell you all about it. <clears throat> Perhaps more surprising, though, national covenants, national covenants based on the Pentateuch were used in the founding of many original colonies in British North America. They were used in the founding of many original colonies there and following the Puritans in England, of course. And actually, when you look at the scholarly literature, it reveals that even by the time of the American Revolution, the polemical argumentation, the political polemical argumentation at the time of the American Revolution between 1765 and 1805, and of course you do know that there were many parliamentarians who wanted freedom for the British colonies here in North America, including men like William Wilberforce and so on. The problem was the king, King George, <clears throat> that's another subject, but 16, 1765 through 1805, it contains that literature contains more citations from Deuteronomy than all the European political philosophers combined. Now you think about that. Thirdly and, and finally, or almost finally, sort of penultimately really, law and constitution, defining theonomy, law and constitution. So that's something of a sort of a whistle-stop tour of the historical significance, the formative influence of God's law in the West. Ironically, that tends to be passed over very quickly by critics. It's almost invisible. There's a, there's a lack of desire to understand the role of God's law in society. I would strongly recommend to you actually the work of Dr. Jonathan Burnside in that regard, an English scholar who teaches biblical law at the University of Bristol. So in our culture, the past is seen, even by many Christians today, as something to be transcended rather than inherited. Something to be transcended rather than inherited. We imagine that what's latest is best that what has antiquity must be outdated or irrelevant. That's a very sad thing. People begin to get upset then when those concerned about a recovery of God's law move beyond theoretical theological discussion and they start challenging the status quo by speaking about the significance of God's law for today in the context of liberal democracies. And in the hysterical noise that often ensues, usually around ceremonial things, dietary things, and uh, the penal sanctions of God's law, what is often sadly missed is very significant, and that is the way God's law 
has shaped and must again reshape our social and political life. Now, let's start by granting, when we talk about law and constitution, that biblical Israel was constituted differently to modern nation-states in Europe and America. That doesn't mean it has nothing to say. The law of God contains material that defines the legal status of persons and regulations for the exercise of governmental power. The Bible is, in many respects, a covenantal and therefore a public legal document. And it actually enables and has enabled certain kinds of communities, polities, and civil societies to emerge. And so covenant has actually been accurately described as a seminal political idea. A seminal political idea. The Constitution of Israel itself is grounded in God's covenant word, which constitutionalizes his relationship to Israel, whereby a people, both individually, not just collectively, but individually and collectively, are called to live in freedom. Do you like that? To live in freedom under God with specific obligations. Dr. Burnside explains that Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 18, 22, I haven't got time to read it, sets out a division and balance of power between judges or elders and the king and priests and prophets, ensuring that there couldn't be a concentration of power of human authority in any single human individual in marked contrast to what Israel had experienced under Pharaoh in Egypt. The pagan view, and what then developed throughout Babylon and then finally amongst the Caesars. There was to be in Israel no divine human configuration, no imperial man, no empire was ever offered to a patriarch of Israel or to a king of Israel, except the line of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has offered universal empire. Did you know that actually at the coronation, uh, historically, and I think probably in the wording this coming weekend, there is an explicit acknowledgement of the universal reign and empire of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is the self-understanding of Scripture that Torah, that the law of God, forms the model constitution to be emulated by all the nations. It's explicit in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. Here's the model constitution. The other nations can emulate it. Indeed, a structure which sets all authority under the sovereignty of the King of Kings has proven itself compatible with various constitutional arrangements. A republic, a constitutional monarchy. Interestingly, rabbinic commentary claims that the Torah, and this is very interesting, that Torah was given in the wilderness, not later in Jerusalem during the period of monarchy, so that all nations could accept it as their own. It was given in the wilderness. So whatever your constitutional arrangement might be, this is for you. 
If it had been given to a king in Jerusalem, maybe the Americans wouldn't have fully accepted the law of God. Much of the law is practical case studies in what it means to do justice in various circumstances, demanding that judges, judges who are chosen by ordinary people, in Deuteronomy 16, not appointed by Justin Trudeau, but chosen by ordinary... That's the Prime Minister of Canada, by the way. <laughs> chosen by ordinary people so that they would, quote, judge the people with righteous judgment. The goal of the covenantal arrangement is that righteousness and justice are done in terms of God's standards. And this necessitates a wise application of God's instruction, and it demands real limits, not just on judges, but restrictions on the king. This was unheard of in the pagan world. Restrictions on the king. We were still fighting about that during the English Revolution when we cut Charles I's head off. These restrictions were to prevent the monarch becoming like a pagan sovereign and turning the state into a totalitarian power center and the source of law. The restrictions including, included excessive stockpiling of weapons, the contracting of multiple marriages, that weapons issue was to do with building empire. The contracting of multiple marriages with foreign powers so that you could again consolidate power. The control of economic life in terms of taxes, confiscatory taxes and plunder, forbidden to the king. Goodness me, we're subject to confiscatory taxation today in Europe, especially. I know it's often a different story in America. Do you know what the one positive central duty of the king was? Let me read it to you from Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. Also it shall be that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. He had, he had to do his homework. He had to write it out himself. He had to do lines. Write it out yourself. Write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before, from the, one before the priests and Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart is not lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. It was servant kingship under the law of God. That was his one positive duty. There was to be no absolute monarch. The ruler is required to be a vassal king under God, to serve the law and the people in his sphere of authority. And he wasn't permitted to usurp the role of priests and Levites either. Look what happened to Saul when he tried to usurp the priesthood. His role was relativized under God. That's true today because of Christianity of the United Kingdom. The monarch 
there, a role relativized under God. Did you know that the titular head of the Church of England, the, the king, formerly the queen, cannot serve as priest, cannot serve sacraments, cannot preach the word of God in the church? So even where you have a intermingling there of church and state, uh, I would call it an interlacement, there is a separation of jurisdiction and authority. In the Older Testament church, with its priesthood and prophets, there was likewise a limit. The, the priests, for example, had limitations on land ownership and use. And because the Torah was a public document that was taught and read throughout all of Israelite society, against which the teaching of priests and Levites could be measured, tested, they couldn't get away with things. This is why, by the way, the translation of the Bible into the vernacular, into English, was a battle of the Reformation to break the excessive power of the church. I will put the Bible in the hand of every plowboy. I think that was William Tyndale. It breaks, it, or it limits, it delimits the power of clergy. A literate, educated society means accountability at all levels of government. That's why modern education is directed towards making you illiterate. <laughs> Uncritical. In the case of prophets who were a constitutional check on wayward monarchs, and they were independent of the priesthood, there was also accountability. False prophets were weeded out by tests of their integrity and veracity. So the scripture says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them, Isaiah 8.20. If we were to uphold this and hold political and church leaders to that standard today, what kind of a church and society would we be enjoying right now? To the law and to the testimony? Burnside is very helpful in his summary of this. When he summarizes the constitutional arrangements, and I'm almost done. One, a kind of separation of powers. Two, a covenant between ethnic or other groups as the basis for the Constitution rather than the rights of the individual. Three, a focus on citizen obligation rather than rights. Four, a head of state that is under and not above the law. Five, restraints on capital markets to protect family and community relationships. And six, the importance of collocated extended families for the provision of welfare. Six things that you see in uh, this constitution. You know how everybody demands this sort of Nordic, Scandinavian vision of rights today? And then it becomes, like in Canada, a battle of everybody claiming their rights and then a conflict of rights. Nobody seems to have any responsibilities or obligations. And if you can prove that you're part of a victim group who needs additional rights, you have war in political life. That's what we've got. So, in his conclusion, in arguing that the theonomic constitutional life of Israel is compatible with various political regimes, he says that we should take seriously what biblical law teaches in regard to finance, 
the avoidance of national debt, criminal justice, administration of welfare and healthcare, and a host of other areas, end quote. Idolatry leads to injustice then. True worship and obedience lead to justice and blessing on the people. So without a constitution under the living God and his law, what is the result? Decay, decadence, loss of freedom, steadily follow. The President of the United States used to take his oath of office on a Bible open to the blessings and cursings of the law in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Let's end where we began. The life of Israel under its righteous kings pointed forward to the ruler of kings. The, oh, that's the title of one of my other books. Don't forget to get that one as well. Um, ruler of kings, Revelation 1.5. The king of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his universal empire that breaks down all the boundaries of ethnicity. Like Simeon in the temple upon seeing the boy Jesus, faithful representatives of the nation state of Israel could now depart in peace from their temporary calling because the salvation of all peoples had been prepared. Since all authority is only a delegated and limited authority proceeding not from the will of individuals but from God, the prophetic and paradigmatic deliverance of Israel from servitude under a totalitarian power which arrogated to itself divine prerogatives indicates the eschatological direction of all of history, the liberation of all nations and all political orders to become humble servants of Jesus Christ. And that's the meaning of Romans 13. God's diaconate, God's deacon. And as prophets, priests, and kings in Christ, the law speaks to us all. Whatever constitutional arrangements we may live under, we are sent out to prophesy in his name, to speak truth to power, and to hold all authority accountable to the absolute sovereign and his law. And because the gospel is true, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This relativizes all political life and requires that we live in each area of our lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. In the area of public life, this surely means a theonomic covenantal politics where law and gospel are a seamless garment bringing life and hope to the nations. Now, I am going to beg two minutes to close. Because I think I may be, time may be up. Is my time up, basically? Because I want to give you my ten commitments for rejecting theonomy. And we'll pick these up in Q&A and so on. Ten commitments for rejecting theonomy. One, studied ignorance. Misunderstanding it as legalism. We're under grace, not law. Have you ever heard that one? What is the meaning of grace without law? The gospel only has something to say to those who are subject to God's law. Because if you're not subject to God's law, you're not a sinner. And if you're not a sinner, you don't need a saviour. They are interwoven with one another. We are not under the condemnation of the law if we are in Christ, the eternal condemnation of the law. But that does not mean if you drive out of this 
beautiful park at 120 miles per hour and kill somebody, the police are going to say, you're not under the condemnation of the law. Does it? We're not under that eternal condemnation penalty of the law. But there's a studied ignorance here. People just haven't looked at the issue. Secondly, unbelief. Some people just prefer secularism to the law of God. Let's admit it, folks. Sometimes we just prefer paganism to the word of God. This is a huge issue in the church today. But Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe Moses, how can you believe what I say? Unbelief. Thirdly, antinomianism, like Marcion of old, a rejection of God's law with theological sophistry and casuistry. Marcion rejected the Older Testament and significant chunks of the Newer Testament in the name that it must have been re referring to a different God, a demiurge, but not the God of love of the Newer Testament. And we see in forms of two kingdoms thought and dispensationalism a desire to use theological sophistry to get around the law of God. Fourthly, confusion. Some people are just honestly confused about this. They're, they're confused over the issue of fulfillment. Wasn't it only for Israel? But I would say to you that the whole of God's law remains in force. The ceremonial law is not abolished according to Calvin. It's transposed into the heavenly temple where Christ sprinkles his blood on the mercy seat. Hebrews 8, uh, the book of Hebrews, the whole of the book of Hebrews is about the transposition of the ceremonial elements of the law. The moral law is deepened and expanded by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, and the judicial law continues. If you were to say the judicial law has been fulfilled, in what sense? I just gave you that illustration of, of uh, temporal judgment. How can we say the judicial law is fulfilled? We're saying that the cross cancels it? So does the cross cancel the need for magistrates and justice in the temporal order? No, it doesn't. Do we say that at the end of time, the, the final judgment is the fulfillment of the judicial law? Well, no, because the Jews believed in the final judgment as well, and they were given the law. And we believe in a final judgment. We still need justice today. No, there's confusion. Fifthly, the ecclesiocracy thesis. There's a fear that it's going to imply rule by clergy. Well, read Ruler of Kings and understand sphere sovereignty, as taught in the Bible, and you realize it doesn't mean rule by clergy. Yes, there were mistakes in medieval Christendom. We don't have to repeat the mistakes of the medieval era. We can be more obedient, more faithful. Just because clergy have overreached in the past and there was an ecclesiocracy doesn't mean we reject God's law. Sixthly, you can't legislate morality. You can only legislate morality. Well, what is procedural there too? Somebody's morality is always being legislated. Law is the legislation of Moral ideas, moral principles that underlie the legislation. Even bits of technocratic legislation are presupposing some kind of moral standard that you're trying to regulate people into. Seventh, the sanctions of God's law are too harsh. Well, 
In the time even of William Wilberforce in England, one of the founders of evangelicalism, there were over a hundred laws that attracted the death penalty. In, before Cromwell's revision of the judicial law, there were over 300 laws that attracted the death penalty. When you look at history, pagan law and even Western law, biblical law is humane, just. God's law recognizes that we are dust. Biblical sanctions are maximum penalties. There's lots of judicial flexibility built into biblical law although there was no flexibility around first-degree murder. No other form of restitution is permitted for first-degree murder in the Bible. We can discuss that maybe during Q&A. Eighth, it's an illiberal law code. It would take away our liberty. No, it would secure our liberty. G.K. Chesterton said, you will live by either the Ten Commandments or the Ten Thousand Commandments. There's 10, and there's case laws, illustrations of the Decalogue, of the standing law. That guarantees freedom. They're largely framed, you shall not. But when you're commanded to love everything and everyone in modern culture, there's no end to litigation. And there's no end to the regulation and laws that are going to coerce you in that direction. So it's not illiberal, it's the opposite. It's biblical libertarianism. Nine, the failure thesis. Biblical law's been tried and it failed. Look at the Puritans. That's interesting. What would you say our law has done? What would you say humanistic law has done? No, this is false. Biblical law is not utopian law. It recognizes that this is for a sinful, broken, fallen world, 1 Timothy 1. There will be a point where elements of the law, the judicial law, of course, will be no longer needed. But it is needed now. And what does it mean for law to work anyway? That it didn't work. Really? No, marriages might fail, but you don't abolish marriage. Say, oh, marriage doesn't work, let's get rid of it. Has God's law been applied in ways that have been less than ideal? Yes. Have there been misunderstandings, misapplications? Yes. But our task then is to have a better understanding, a more faithful understanding, a more faithful application. Finally, the persecution thesis. Christianizing culture creates nominal Christians. And so de-emphasizes personal salvation, so it's much better to be a persecuted minority. Tell that to a Christian in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia today, or in North Korea. It's a very interesting thing listening to Western pastors use their freedom bequeathed by God's law in the West to speak against God's law and decry Christendom. They can only say that because they've had it. We've had it. It's like pulling out the rug from underneath yourself. There will always be nominal Christians. There's always been nominal Christians. And only God will separate the wheat and the tares at the end of time. That's not for us to do. 
The gospel of the kingdom is more than personal salvation. So there are things that God wants to do in history that are good in their own right. That doesn't necessarily have to involve somebody getting personally born again. Saving children from being aborted in the, room, in the womb is good and just in its own right. Whether or not the person who stops doing it surrenders their life to Christ. Where there is no freedom for the gospel, Christians suffer and the preaching of the gospel suffers and logically this objection would mean never seeking justice or righteousness for the oppressed for slaves or justice for criminals because injustice promotes personal salvation what kind of an argument is that and anyway scripture says whatever you do whether you eat, drink, or listen to a Joe Boot lecture that goes over time, do it all for the glory of God. Amen. Whoa, 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 you're going to want to hear this. Our next two conferences are coming up quick. We've got first our fall conference. This is November 11th and 12th. That's a full day Saturday and a holdover for the Lord's Day, November 12th. Uh, who's speaking at this conference? Well, we've got Jared Longshore and... Chris Wiley, and yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. What's the title? The title is The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a second, you can't use that title, Joel. That's the title for Chris Wiley's book. Well, I can use it because he's going to be there speaking, and he gave me his permission. We're going to be talking about the household as the basic building block for pushing back the kingdom of darkness in this world. We're going to be talking about biblical patriarchy. We're going to be talking about marriage and patriarchy parenting, how to keep your kids, how to shape and form them like straight arrows, like sharp arrows that do damage to the kingdom of darkness, training our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. A full day on Saturday, November 11th, and then holding Jared Longshore over for the Lord's Day, November 12th, to preach at my church, Covenant Bible Church, in Central Texas. You can register at the early bird rate, which will not last long, but you can register at the early early bird rate today by going to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. Now, our second conference is our spring conference. This is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. The title for this conference, Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We don't want to revert back to Christendom 1.0, although it would certainly be a whole lot better than the clown world that we're currently living in. But we recognize, despite the phenomenal features of a prior Christendom, there were certain bugs that we'd like to see worked out. So we're not going back. We are pushing forward to Christendom 2.0. We believe that the blueprints are seven doctrines for ruling the world righteously. What are these seven doctrines? Well, it's reformed confessionalism. It's covenant theology. It's biblical patriarchy. It's presuppositionalism and Kuyperianism and general equity theonomy and hopeful eschatology post-millennialism. Who's going to be teaching us on these doctrines? Voldemort, 
He who must not be named, Pastor Douglas Wilson himself. You also got Mr. Bright Hearth, Mr. Kings Hall, Mr. Haunted Cosmos, Pastor Brian Sauvé. And we also have Dr. Joseph Boot and, of course, yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. We'll be doing seven primary lectures as well as two 90-minute panels with all the speakers together, and we'll likely add a couple more speakers along the way. Again, that's March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We've got the early bird rate going right now, but it will run out quickly. So go to rightresponseconference.com, rightresponseconference.com to register today.